0: Stuff Podcasts.
1: This episode of The Commune contains strong language, sexual content and references to suicide.
2: Of well, course, one of the difficulties of living with a group of people is you do find some very awkward buggers in the
3: outfit. <laughs> it's very
2: hard to move them around and manipulate them, but in time and space, everything can be solved. And as you just relax there and rest, you don't have to close your eyes unless you want to.
4: You have your eyes open, just pick some spot to focus them on.
1: I'm Adam Dudding, and this is The Commune. Episode 2, Awkward Buggers.
5: Yeah, so there's a line I wrote that Centrepoint has done for communities what the Hindenburg did for airships. Yeah, it's um, it might seem like I had some great vision of what was going on there, but um, it wasn't at all. This is Chris. Chris Gaskell. I've been a working journalist most of my life. I currently
1: And back in the early 80s, Chris Gaskell was editor of a newspaper on Auckland's North Shore.
5: Editor of the um, Rodney and White Matter Times.
1: Whose circulation area included Albany. Albany and Centrepoint. His was a community paper, free to a letterbox, full of lucrative classified ads,
5: page after page after page of classified advertising ads. as well as
1: local human interest stories.
5: So there was a local oarsman who went to the Olympics and that sort of thing
1: and occasionally some local politics.
5: Helensville Maternity Hospital was a big local issue at that stage and the matron there was nice and stroppy and she had plenty to say. So So compared to those kind of stories... The whole centre-point thing was just a gift. I mean, there'd been, you know, hippie communes before that but they were tucked away at the back of Coromandel or James K. Baxter down on the Whanganui River. That's the
1: famous poet who set up a community in a place in the lower North Island called Jerusalem in the late 60s.
5: This was Albany. This was right on our doorstep there, and you know we'd heard the stories around the sex and drugs. It just had everything, really. You know, and and obviously that that salacious angle was always going to sell, even sells a free paper.
1: It wasn't like Centrepoint was even particularly secretive.
5: I mean, they had open days. You know, people were invited there to see them. And I guess, too, that it was the people who were there. You know, it wasn't some um, weirdo hippies he had somehow plugged into what you might call normal people in as much as they were doctors and nurses and teachers. Sitting here right now, we know that um, Center Point was a tragedy. But I saw it as a comedy at that stage. I mean, I just thought it was hilarious. Maybe it's schoolboy humour, but I just think it's really funny that Bert's dad's name is Dick and his mother's name's Fanny I mean <laughs> who doesn't laugh at that I sort of thought it as a bit of a Monty Python thing I imagined him at you know Christchurch Technical College and things were a bit boring and tech drawing one day and he draws this amazing life plan where he's the king and he's probably going to do it on an island but he had all these women there and they're all his women and everything was at his beck and call and by by some miracle. He made that dream become reality. Albany was rural, but Centrepoint
1: still had a few neighbours.
5: Yes, well, my name is Derek Firth.
1: Derek Firth was, and still is, a lawyer. His 12-acre section and the house he built on it backed on to the Center Point property. The commune's hub, kitchens and dining room and so on, were way over the other side, but Firth's house did overlook a few of the smaller centre point buildings.
5: Opposite our driveway there was a house in which they had um, some
1: of their uh, more personal meetings. One time, one of them came up to our house and said, look you might hear some screaming and yelling, just ignore it. So that's exactly what Derek did. The lifestyle of his neighbours was... It was just a non-issue, we just knew that they were
4: perhaps a little bit unusual but it was of no consequence to us at all. They had a, a very hippie lifestyle. The things that were talked about for the fact that they got
3: up and just took whatever clothing was available. So they often looked like boiled lollies when they were walking around. <laughs> and, um, and that there was an awful lot of emphasis on sex, but that wasn't an issue. They were just unusual.
1: Ask around, and it seems that this kind of bemused tolerance was pretty commonplace in the early days. And some people were actively enthusiastic about what a community like this could mean for the area.
4: Close your eyes and imagine the Albany Basin. On the floor of the Albany Basin were were strawberry fields, orchards, grazing for paddocks, a pony club, a, a few sheep. It was very rural and the basin was surrounded by an escarpment of fabulous native forest some exotics. Now, it was there in the Albany escarpment that centre point was located.
1: Wynne Hoadley was a local councillor at the time, and later mayor.
4: There were those of us on the council who were very keen to preserve that escarpment because the Albany Basin was earmarked for development in the future. So just remember the mindset of that time. Here was an entity called Center Point who were run by a trust who had members who were doing a whole lot of creative things fitting into the bush not chopping down the bush but enhancing the area so they totally fit the bill as far as I was concerned I thought they were actually quite great just between you and me at the time
1: So, where did this commune and its communards really come from? As we said in episode one, they weren't exactly a bunch of drifters in life. These were teachers, doctors, engineers, but they were all seeking something that mainstream society couldn't quite offer. Yes. And many were wanting to leave behind bad experiences and bad relationships.
0: Everybody that came to Centrepoint and stayed had a story like that. This may not be that good, but what I've come from is worse in some ways, and often it's the isolation. At least there's people here to talk to.
1: That's Barry. We met her in episode one, the woman who liked muesli for breakfast.
0: I grew up in a middle-class family, a upwardly mobile middle-class family, um... Presbyterian.
1: In lots of ways, Barry was typical of the point crowd, someone who had always been...
0: ...spiritually minded as a child and as a teenager, and then started to get a bit disillusioned.
1: So, steeped in religion, but prepared to push back. Mm, mm. Young Barry went off to study, initially taking classes in psychology.
0: At university, and then we were giving electric shocks to rats doing experiments that wouldn't be allowed today. And I had a bit of a breakdown at that time.
1: She couldn't deal with it, the cruelty to the rats in those experiments. So she switched...
0: ...to teaching, training as a teacher, and met my first husband, who was at the time the most exciting man I'd ever met.
1: They had a lot in common, and she found him fascinating.
0: With interesting spiritual beliefs, we talked for hours and... We married because that's what you had to do in those days if you wanted a sexual relationship. And we were together 11 years and had two children.
1: But the relationship wasn't a healthy one.
0: Yeah. um,
1: Nuclear family life wasn't working for Barry, but divorce...
0: Wasn't something people did, so I was reading and reading and reading and decided community living would get me out of this
1: nuclear trauma Okay, so community living. What Barry had picked up on was a movement that was gaining popularity in the 70s. Communal life were a group of families and individuals. Pull their money and find somewhere to all live together. Yes, yes, yes. Barry and her then-husband joined up with another couple.
0: We bought a block of land and another group joined us who'd been running a preschool and we formed a community, which is still going, and we centred it around a school and it was very exciting.
1: Like she says, that community called Timatanga in West Auckland is still going today. Yes. But Barry's relationship with her husband... The switch to communal living wasn't enough to rescue that.
0: The shouting didn't stop.
1: They separated, and Barry ended up leaving the community.
0: And did the classic thing of falling into another, not very healthy relationship. But she really wanted to make it work with this new man, John Sweden. He was a very creative man, and had recognition in New Zealand at that time as a really good uh, ceramic This new relationship was a struggle. They wanted advice, but... Um, There wasn't really much, like, couples therapy available back in the 70s. Marriage counselling was tended to be, you know, Christian women. And it didn't fit with the 70s revolution. What could
1: she do to save this relationship? And to save herself? Then, bingo! (laughs) Bingo! John started going to a place that was doing group therapy in central Auckland, the Shoreline Trust.
0: They operated
1: out of a big, big house.
0: house um, sort of under the motorway in Newmarket, Gillies Avenue.
1: The Gillies Avenue house became something of a mecca for group therapy in Auckland. And there were, it seemed, some really skilled people there, including Bill and Annie, that couple we mentioned last episode that Barry had come to really like, the couple who had previously lived in a community up north. Bill the psychiatrist, Annie the counsellor. And there was someone else at Gillies Avenue too.
0: John took me over to the Shoreline Group to meet Bert. You must meet Bert. And so that was my first meeting with Bert.
1: Yeah, Bert. That Bert. Bert Potter. He already had a big reputation as some kind of therapy wizard. So, Barry's first impressions?
0: What I saw was this man just sitting in front of the television set. And so I'd had this big build up to who he was and expecting, I don't know what I was expecting, but not someone sitting glumly in front of television. I was introduced to him and, you know, he said, Oh, you must come into a group. And sort of that that was about it. and so it was sort of like, what have people seen him?
1: What she didn't know at the time was that Bert was going through a breakup himself. He was a bit down in the dumps. Anyway, she and John moved out to Bethels, a wild, black sand, remote beach on Auckland's west coast. John set up a pottery for his famous ceramic work and they kept going to the shoreline therapy sessions. Plenty of others were turning up at shoreline too, including another guy we met in the first episode who we're calling Robert. Actually, it was Robert's wife who discovered the place.
2: My partner had first got interested in Shoreline Human Awareness Trust because she was suffering postnatal depression. And the alternative wasn't very kind. And so after the doctor checked things out, we decided that she would go to... Auckland and partake of one of these seven-day workshops and see what happened. And in fact, it seemed to help her a hell of a lot. So much so as she did another one or two groups, I thought I'd go and have a look at this outfit too because I well needed a holiday and a week of sitting around might be a lot better than slaving my guts out again.
1: <laughs> Not that it sounded like much of a holiday. How would you feel at the end of a seven-day session?
2: Through the seven days, you could. I'd feel quite exhausted sometimes absolutely totally physically shagged but knowing that the friday was coming up and you were finishing up i'd feel rather contented with where i'd been and what i'd achieved
1: it's kind of hard to explain how out there and in a way revolutionary the encounter groups were at the gillies house in those days It was drawn from the practices and philosophies of the Eslin Institute, the place Bert had visited in California. And in fact, they maintained some connections with that international therapeutic scene. An elderly lady had
2: come over from America. I think her surname might have been Reich or something like that. But anyway...
1: Near enough, the name was Reich. Barry told us about that visit too. Madame Reich's daughter came to visit. Now this is significant because Wilhelm Reich is a big name in psychotherapy. And here was his daughter out at Gillies Ave in Auckland, New Zealand, working with Bert Potter and the other therapists.
0: And she did quite a bit of training of people in the group and body streaming and that kind of thing and body tapping to release tension.
1: All right, I think we should stop and explain this bit, partly because Reichian therapy was quite a big deal during Centrepoint's foundation but also because it's just such a wild story. Wilhelm Reich was born in 1897 in Austria. He was a psychoanalyst, kind of following in the footsteps of Sigmund Freud. But if you thought Freud could get a bit weird about sex, Reich was in another league. In his 20s, he came up with the idea of something called orgastic potency. It was all to do with the fact that emotions were contained in your muscles and that the way to keep emotions in good shape was, well, orgasms even at the time, a lot of people thought this was pretty dubious. In 1939, Reich moved to the US. Then, he announced he'd discovered a cosmic energy force called orgone radiation. He said the reason the sky was blue was because of all the orgone radiation up there, and he reckoned this stuff was so powerful it could cure cancer. And the best way to get the benefits of this orgone energy? well. Wilhelm Reich said you needed to sit in a specially made device of his own invention, which he called an Orgone accumulator. I've gone online and found a picture of an actual Orgone accumulator, and it's kinda of like a wardrobe, a tall box, door at the front, a regular chair inside, it's lined with a layer of metal, and yeah, you meant to sit in there naked for a while and the orgone radiation, which to be clear doesn't actually exist, kinda of bounces around inside the box, making you healthy. In the end, these bizarre wooden boxes were the end of Wilhelm Reich. American officials ordered him to stop selling them as a health treatment, but he wouldn't. So he ended up in prison and died there of a heart attack in 1957, aged 60. But alongside this utterly bonkers stuff, Reich also came up with some practices that remained pretty popular on the fringes of psychotherapy, even after he died. This is the kind of Reichian therapy that Barry was talking about, It's physical and hands-on. There's touching and massage and movement and breathing. So yeah, 20 years after the death of the extremely strange Wilhelm Reich in a house in Gillies Ave, Auckland, New Zealand, a group of therapists were using his techniques in the hope of unleashing hidden anger and frustrations and freeing clients of their sexual hang-ups. Okay, so back to Barry. She saw that the Gillies Ave Shoreline Trust Group was heading towards the idea of a commune. And she liked what she was hearing, especially because it was being pushed by her friends Annie and Bill.
0: They wanted to have a community, so they really pushed that. And so this was just like, oh, yes, I can't live in my foundation community. Here's another community. And my women at the well, the part that I loved.
1: Barry was in. She and John helped in the search for a suitable bit of land, One early option was a block north of Auckland, near a seaside village called Lee.
0: Bill just fell in love with it and came back to the Gillies Ave house and, Bert, you must come and see this. This is just the ideal place.
1: So this sounds promising, right? A group of people who want to live together and one of the leading lights, Bill, who, according to Barry, is...
0: Just a really kind, beautiful human being. And he's
1: trying to convince Bert to come and look at this bit of land. And what does Bert say?
0: has to be within 20 kilometres of the CBD, not even going to look at it.
1: It turns into a full-on confrontation, a a kind of one-sided one.
0: Bert's strategy when he was putting someone down was just rapid-fire speech, just rapid-fire and intense eye contact. And now I know when people are speaking very, very fast, the listener's brain can't process it. It would just be like a deluge of words that you would get with this intense in-your-face eye contact.
1: Barry knew she was witnessing something more than just an argument about land.
0: I can remember just cowering in the sofa. It was a big, huge, big old house, big lounge, and I was cowering, but absolutely fascinated, absolutely fixed. I just remember the... <sighs> so I was just kind of watching this and then Bert leaving the room and Bill being quite shattered. And Bill looked at me and said, "Oh, you are still here?
1: The quiet, watchful Barry... Had just seen Bert Potter assert himself as leader through sheer verbal domination.
0: It was a critical incident, it was. Bill surrendered.
1: Bert got his way. The search for land was kept to within a 20 kilometre radius of central Auckland. Bert didn't want to be stuck out in the middle of nowhere away from potential therapy clients. By late 1977, they'd found a suitable spot, a 30 acre plot in the Albany Basin on Mills Lane. Just off Otea Valley Road. There was a small farmhouse and a shed on site, but not much else. But it was perfect. They pulled together the money for a deposit, formed a trust, applied for a mortgage, and bought the place. There was only one other question what would they call themselves? There were a few suggestions, and then Annie came up with something Centrepoint. Not everyone liked it at first, but it was the least unpopular option, and it kind of stuck.
4: But if we can move a long way off, then mm. other people can look and say, OK, if it's so fragile,
1: at least it's safe for me to move that far. Kia ora koutou. it's Eugene Bingham here, producer of The Commune. You'll have gotten used to the voice of this guy. Kia ora. Yeah, him. Adam Dudding. Eugene and I have been making The Commune for about 18 months, and if you've stuck around for the credits, you know there are so many other people involved too. So, yeah, it takes a bunch of time and money to make these things. If you want to help Stuff make podcasts and other long-form journalism like this, we'd love your support. Through the Stuff supporter program, you can contribute any amount you choose, and you can do it once, or monthly, or annually. Go to stuff.co.nz forward slash support. At 10am on a January morning in 1978, Ulrich, a Swiss-born chemical engineer, arrived at Mills Lane. A small access road off Oteha Valley Road, Albany. He crossed the bridge and headed up the hill to the farmhouse on the 30 acre site that was about to become the Centrepoint Commune. He was part of the advance wave of pioneers, a smaller group who came a month ahead of the others to get a few things ready. Ulrich talked about this moment in the book Inside Point. That book was an upbeat account of the community, written by a Centrepoint member called Len Oakes and published in the mid-1980s. Len had a degree in psychology and was a researcher and writer. In the book, Ulrich remembers approaching the empty farmhouse.
0: The door of the little house was open and everything was quiet, just like Neville shoots on the beach.
1: I thought, this is my new life. Soon, others turned up and they got to work.
2: Well, there was a lot of building to be done.
1: Robert again.
2: And there was a lot of drains to be dug. There was all those basic things of water
1: and sewage. There was the issue of where to sleep. Barry explains.
0: Some people brought caravans. So there were quite a few caravans and tents because it was summer. And then there's a beautiful clearing that was called the glade with bush all around it. And so more tents were put in that glade.
1: The old farmhouse was hoisted up and a whole new floor was built below with huge communal kitchen and dining and living areas. Later, there were larger longhouses, basically big dormitories for multiple families. But Barry says that wasn't what she'd expected. When the pioneers were hatching plans back at Gilly's Ave...
0: So we envisaged a little village with family homes dotted around, but it just didn't work out that way. So by
1: her account, even early on, Barry was a bit anxious about the way things were going. Robert, though... He was all in. You can go through
2: life with the choke half out and the engine half flooded and not doing your best. No bloody use to anybody, yourself or anybody else. And I thought, well, I'll go and give it a real
1: good go and see what happens. Robert literally loved the ground center point stood on. One time he was digging a big hole for a septic tank and his digging blade started hitting the sandstone under the surface. And the more we chopped into the sandstone, the more this blade sharpened.
2: And it was like a bloody razor. God, it was fantastic, yeah. I'd never been in country like that before. It'd only been thick, heavy clays and that for me, but
1: oh, it was really lovely stuff. Hard work for the body, therapy sessions for the soul, a wife by side, but also the possibilities of sex with other women. For Robert, there was much to love about this fledgling community that created. We interviewed Robert in his little harbourside house a few hours south of Auckland. Harbourside makes it sound flash, but he lives a pretty simple life. Fruit and veg from the garden, fish from the harbour. Was there only three in there? Oh, no, there's a fourth. There's the third one over there. Oh, OK. Once the interview was over, he invited us to stay for lunch. He had some flounder.
2: Um, there's more butter or that, whatever you want.
1: Or or... He showed me the frying pan and the block of butter and the plate of fish and left me to it. While I made lunch, Robert took producer Eugene out to the huge avocado tree in the garden, sent him up a ladder, and pointed out which avocados to pick. Honestly, if you were inclined to set up a new commune in 30 acres of bush, this is the kind of guy you'd want on your team. But even though Centrepoint was a kind of paradise, Robert could see there were some flaws in the fantasy. Some community members were basically bone idols. I used to get a little bit pissed off quite a few people had just sort
2: of lounge around when they could which was a fair bit of the time as I'm them and try and look lovely you know and I'd be working my ass off fixing something trying to keep something going also though you wouldn't exactly call Bert Potter idle
1: he could be unhelpful in a different kind of way
2: he'd always said to us in general conversation that one of his fantasies in life was to go to Alaska and be a logger, you know, and cut down huge trees and all this shit, and whether it was just the tight pants he wanted to wear
1: or what, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, one Sunday afternoon,
2: Bert decides he's going to cut down this big pine tree. I never knew a thing about it.
1: Robert's in the lounge.
2: Reading a, a paper or smooching up to somebody on a Sunday afternoon, and one of the guys comes in and says to me, oh, Bert wants you to come up. He's been... Cutting down the pine tree and is jammed on the saw. he wants you to come up and sort it out please.
1: Oh God so Robert gets up, gets his boots on, picks up the blunt spare chainsaw from the tool shed and heads off to find Bert
2: and he's got about five guys up there with them all sitting around watching the magnificent creature cut down this pine tree which was about a hundred feet tall. <laughs> Uh, and he didn't have a bloody clue and here it is sitting on the sewer and he had no wedges, he had nothing you know so I said to them all him included, I says I'm just going to keep one of you guys you can stay with me Terry and the others of you and you included but piss off and get well out of the way because we mightn't be that lucky it goes the way we want it to go which they did and then we went and got this other old saw and give it a quick sharpen and Cut the tree down anyway. That was the sort of danger he was.
1: It seems Bert always considered himself the ultimate expert, no matter what the subject. Six months in, one of the founding couples had a baby. The entire community gathered to watch the home birth. This kind of public birthing would become a centre point tradition, and every time, right at the centre of the performance, alongside the mother and the father and the community's midwife and doctors, would be Bert Potter holding the mother, offering advice, basically trying to run the show. Except, as the midwife told Robert after one of the births,
2: She had to tell Bert, and she told me very strongly afterwards, I wasn't going to let him shag up my reputation because
1: of what he wanted to do. He didn't know a bloody thing about it. In many things, though, Bert did get away with calling the shots. If someone wanted to join as a full member, Bert made the call. And he was very good at explaining just how lucky they were if they did get in, as Barry tells us.
0: We, on the inside, were special, more loving than the rest of the world. <laughs> and outside was yeah, any yeah, anybody not in the community.
1: It was an exclusive club. And like any exclusive club, it developed its own language. The jargon of centrepoint came from the worlds of therapy, from the hippie movement fashionable slang so you had the word blocked blocked off this meant
0: blocked was you weren't open you weren't accepting what Bert was saying you weren't sexually open
1: There's always a lot of talk about being
0: in touch with your
1: loving being in touch with your loving was basically the opposite of being blocked so emotionally open but also
0: as the community went on it got a very sexual overtone to it
1: What else? Going off, this was pretty
0: straightforward. Going off was finding finding someone and disappearing somewhere into the community, a a bed somewhere. So that was casual sex. It wouldn't be with your partner. Mm. And the jargon goes on. There's
1: tasks, basically. That's where Bert gives you some little job or challenge. There's clearing, blowing off, pushing buttons, old com, good com, hierarchy, and a really important thing called feedback. We'll get to some of those later. All you need to know for now though is that after some tough months early on, financial worries, building permit hassles, friction over which members were pulling their weight, there did come a time when the community felt like it was actually working. New people kept on asking to move in and Bert said yes to a lot of them and the population ballooned from a couple of dozen to 40 to 60 and then more and this explosive growth would eventually become a big deal. Communal living meant a lot of the domestic drudgery was shared around really efficiently. My old schoolmate Angie remembers how...
0: Meals are just served, you don't have to help prepare, there's a
6: kitchen staff, you just get in the line and get your meal and sit down. was <coughs> like being in, on a holiday camp.
1: And there was always fun stuff going on, especially for the kids.
6: Sometimes we had sort of dances or do's in the evening, (laughs) and everyone would dress up and, um, you know, play music and dance. It was just a really um, enjoyable community atmosphere. There was nothing um, pretentious about it.
1: This is a woman we'll call Evelyn, who first arrived when she was about eight and would come and go over the next 12 years.
6: There was a huge toaster that could fit about eight pieces of toast in it, and, um, yeah, there was always someone around to talk to or... um, Always oh, something happening. It's probably my fondest memory.
1: Sometimes things were a bit more adventurous. Renee, that's Angie's younger sister, remembers that Ulrich, the chemical engineer, had a small paper making operation, including this fast metal vat which was used to mix pulp. And so.
6: I remember as a child they cleaned that out, and as a, one of the, the birthdays, they'd made jelly in it. And we actually jumped in the big silver vat that was full of jelly and swam around and ate it. That was epic fun.
1: Eventually, the place was so well set up, it was almost luxurious. That's something that struck Angie the moment they
3: turned up.
0: And we had a swimming pool, tennis court, spa pool, a hot tub.
3: And the Christmases. The Christmases were delightful. This is Barbara, the solo mother
1: who loved therapy. Centrepoint was great at throwing lavish social gatherings. Once, she was in charge of pulling together a huge celebration feast.
3: And I think it was that year that I'd grown a fantastic crop of rock melons. So there was enough rock melons for 400 people to have a half a rock melon each. That was beautifully ripe. I loved cooking for large numbers and planning and sort of dancing out on the lawn. I don't think I was ever so much into that, but... um, As
1: the community grew, the pioneers settled into their positions of seniority. Dave, the businessman, was controller of the commune's finances. Keith, the ex-missionary doctor, and Bill, the psychiatrist, they went into bat for the community in some squabbles that had developed with the council and with some of the Albany locals. Bill's partner, Annie, was gaining a reputation as a really skilled therapist. According to Barbara, there was always so much to do, you could find your own groove.
3: Men and women couldn't sort of choose the work that suited them and they liked so that there, were, there was lots of building going on. There were women on the building sites. There were other people doing the cooking. So it was sort of like work where you're drawn to. And I really thought that was fabulous.
1: As for Barry, the quiet, watchful woman who hoped that communal life could protect her from the traumas of nuclear living, well, for a while she couldn't quite settle...
0: I'd been struggling for my place in the community.
1: She and her partner John actually lived off-site in the early months because John still needed his pottery kiln at Bethel's Beach. But once a new pottery was built at Centrepoint, they moved in fully. Though Barry didn't want to be working at the pottery.
0: It wasn't really my thing. But then... Probably about 1980, I um, started up just a little newsletter.
1: Barry found her groove. She launched the Centrepoint magazine... It came out several times a year. Most editions, there'd be a flattering photo of Burt Potter on the front and inside an essay derived from his weekly talks.
6: I've said about enough to keep Barry happy when she has to type all this out again.
1: Then there'd be a few more pages of photos and stories about community members.
0: And all the stories were, you know, I was this emotional mess and then this happened and I worked through it and was was happy ever after. Um, so they're all pink icing stories of the community. Can we say to be brutal about
1: it that during that time as the magazine editor you were to some extent the centre point propagandist?
0: Absolutely, so you know when you say the magazine I cringe inside.
1: Over time the magazine got thicker and more ambitious and Barry started writing editorials on various themes.
0: I do like to write but you know I'm not like a novelist so I think it just it kind of gave me a safe place. I was I couldn't be a potter. I didn't want to be a craft person. I could work with words, um, and talk with people and get their stories. So it kind of suited me.
1: But as well as creating a safe space for herself, Barry was keeping herself on side with the most important person in the commune. Bert wanted it happening. What she didn't realize at the time was what an amazing resource she was also creating for anyone, a couple of podcast producers say, who might want to track the lives and relationships and utterances of the hundreds of people who popped up in the pages of her magazine. If you want the full, honest story center point, you certainly won't find it in the pages of the magazine. But it's astonishing how much this commune pravda actually reveals about the people and the attitudes the soap operas and sagas of Centrepoint. All the
2: men on
3: one side of the road talking, all the men at the other side of the road talking. Very typical New Zealand
1: Park. As Centrepoint bustled and grew and developed its own language and social structure, more people on the outside started to take notice, not quite sure what to make of it.
2: There was a fair bit of publicity about them, and of course living on the shore, you know, we did our fruit and vegetable shopping in the Albany Basin, so it was one of the big topics of conversation.
1: That's... Ray Van Bonen. Ray Van Boenen. He retired from the police a few years ago.
2: A bit more time to spend cycling and swimming and fishing
1: and... Yeah. ...enjoying life. And talk to documentaries about old cases. <laughs> That's right. But in Centrepoint's early days, like he says, he was living on the North Shore, buying his fruit and vegetables in the Albany Basin and kind of curious about Centrepoint.
2: There was a lot of media commentary around the Centrepoint community and what they were trying to achieve. Did you have a view, particularly? No, I was open-minded about it. I thought that some of the ideas that they were pushing made sense. Uh, I was always not suspicious, but, you know, a bit of a jaundiced view on how a community like that could survive and thrive. But, you know, it certainly had potential around, it had the land, it was probably self-sufficient. But, of course, there was always that underbelly of the free sex.
1: Ah, yes, the sex. We keep talking about the reputation for sexual freedom, so we should probably explain it in a bit more detail. Adults who joined Centrepoint were encouraged to think of themselves as being in an open relationship. But it wasn't compulsory, so some people were monogamous. Some men even reversed their vasectomies and women had their tubes untied. Quite a few couples committed to marriage, including Bert. I asked Barry about that. Why would you want marriages amid this maelstrom of relationships
0: that was his way of viewing it that he had a primary partner and an open relationship so that it could go off sexually but this was the primary partner to come back to every night sort through any difficulties get clear um, so there were no resentments so that was how he viewed it.
1: the center point view was that the outside world was uptight about sex not in touch with its loving as bert would put it at center point it was quite okay to ask anyone you wanted to go to bed with you it could make the rhythm of the day kind of mixed up lunch breaks were often very long as people paired off going off as they called it and disappeared for a while and then at dinner time when the community came together to eat and couples would maybe see each other for the first time since breakfast it could make for difficult conversations
0: so you'd be standing there waiting to get your meal and your partner would arrive and go, I went off with so and so in the after, in the afternoon and, and your stomach would be lurching and you <laughs> it it just was really
1: So you are really just wanting to be queuing for your pumpkin, your roast pumpkin. Yes. And you, and have, by the time and you have to you deal with it. this yes. this pretty heavy psychotherapy. Yes.
0: And then you'd be sitting with your partner and with all these eyes on you trying to eat your
1: meal Was there any uh, suggestion that one should not be jealous or was jealousy okay? Oh
0: yes, oh yes you're holding on Barry you just can't let go you, yes it was spiritual to just let your partner go. There were threesomes and partner
1: swapping and during the week long therapy encounters it was standard to have sex with other people on the course, again mostly during the lunch break it was during one of these seven day courses that Barry had sex with Bert. It's kind of awkward, but we had to ask, right? What was it like sleeping with Bert? Was he truly the sex god he portrayed himself as?
0: True in that really um, physical way, but there was no connection like you would expect. You know, let's go and sit together, let's stay together, um, let's be t- You know, normally it leads into a relationship, right? that's over, you're done, Um, gone. And, yeah, it's really hard to explain. I don't know if he would even remember it. I, I don't know. I really don't know what was going on with him, but it wasn't like a normal, we've had a profound sexual experience, we're bonded, we're connected. There'd be nothing like that about it. It would just be a disconnect then. So maybe he wasn't
1: all that. But Bert, actually Centpoint in general, was pretty pleased with itself as a place of sexual adventure and innovation. It even had a signature sexual move. Bert would brag about it.
2: Many of you have heard of the celebrated centerpoint uh, oral section you know, of the Center point experience. I get it personally a tremendous thrill out of having some lady for the first time and knowing she'd never experienced anybody else from this particular part of the world and having oral sex with her and then giving her the good centre-point blowjob and watching the whole reaction.
1: They were so proud of it. It was even noted in Len Oakes's book. He wrote... The technique involves a man blowing raspberries, the blowing out of air through tightly compressed, puckered-up lips, directly into a woman's clitoris. It takes a man time to learn the skill, but it takes a woman no time at all to enjoy it. Renee, Angie's sister, says at centre-point the sound seemed to be everywhere.
6: It would make this buzzing bzz, kind of sound. So, walking up the stairs between the longhouses, you would hear the buzzing and the screaming. As a kid, it was just like, "What the fuck?" Like they're all doing it. So it would just be like, "Buzz, buzz, just everywhere."
1: So the free love. The frank conversations about sex, the nudity, all the stuff didn't go unnoticed in early 80s New Zealand. For some people, Centrepoint was a bit shocking. And that's the way Bert Potter liked it. He loved winding people up, loved pitting Centrepoint, inside, against the rest of the world, outside. Barry tells this story about a group of local Christian folk who came along to Centrepoint at one time, including some Catholic nuns. Centrepoint had planned and prepared.
0: Scones and jam, and, you know, Centrepoint was good at, at things looking good.
1: So everyone is sitting around, drinking tea, eating scones, chatting amicably, seeing if they can find common ground, talking about
0: God. God. as an old man, or God imminent in life. And so there was a lot of agreement. Lovely. As it wraps up, one of the nuns... In the group thanked... Bert for having them and, you know, acknowledge the agreement and and the good communication. And then she must have said, there's a lot of similarity in our beliefs.
1: A normal person might say, thank you, or yes, I agree. But Bert Potter, he fixes the nun with an intense stare and says,
0: Yes, there's a lot of similarity, but there's one big difference. We have a, a lot of sex and you don't have any. Just absolute silence, just everyone in shock. And I was there, I was in shock too.
1: In the early days at least, Bert was never above taking a jab at religion, ironically, given the way Centrepoint would eventually go. But in that moment, Barry was stunned that he would take a pot shot at a nun about sex.
0: What on earth would he say that for, when we'd just build up this good feeling with the neighbours?
1: So yeah, Bert loved to stir things up, to get in people's faces, to draw attention. And in 1980, he got to go into people's living rooms and do that on a grand scale. Just watch the thoughts that go through. Don't stop them, don't hold on to them. Just watch the thoughts going through your mind. The state broadcaster screened a documentary called A Spiritual Growth Community. It took viewers right inside the commune featured shots of a naked couple running around on the lawn, gleefully chasing each other. Daddy. 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 The birth of a child in front of the whole community.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Director Jeff Stephen took people inside the therapy rooms for what were the most intense parts of the documentary. This bit's hard to watch, but mostly because it's so cringy. These people kind of forcing themselves to emote and scream out their feelings. It's that Wilhelm Reich approach to therapy in all its embarrassing glory.
3: I didn't do that. Right down. Deeper down. Deeper down. down. Right down. There you go.
1: Suddenly, all of mainstream New Zealand got a glimpse inside the commune, a place with very different ideas about personal privacy.
0: At Centrepoint, this does not mean total sexual commitment. Free expression of sexuality is a basic principle.
1: A place where adults were comfortable about having sex in front of their children. And it created a stir. The country reacted, almost like Centrepoint was a foreign body and there was a sort of immune response starting to kick in. One of
3: the aims of the encounter is to bring the...
1: I was 10 when the documentary screened. I have no memory of it from then. And I doubt anyone in my family does either. We actually didn't have a TV. Besides, Centrepoint wasn't some big mystery to us duttings. It was just that place down the road. For my sister Anna, there was a direct connection to Centrepoint through her school, Long Bay College.
6: So I don't remember exactly what year it was. Margaret Potter came and taught at the school and I thought she was teaching English, but it might have been a drama class. Margaret
1: Potter, a lot of people called her Margie, was Bert's wife, and she was a relief teacher. There was this one particular time Anna recalls vividly.
6: She got the whole room to stand up and get in a circle, and it would have been 30 kids, and she was wearing a long batik skirt, wrap-around skirt, and she stood in the middle of the class, and she wanted us to all spin around. So she stood in the middle, and she spun around, and her Batik skirt flew up in the air and she had nothing on underneath. <laughs> so, which was really surprising. <laughs> so we got treated to a um, big black bush <laughs> and, and her skirt flew down and she just carried on and that was the end of it. But there was kind of a gasp of dismay, at least from me and my friends, and actually just giggling and disbelief because it was so weird. It was so surprising. Um, and the class just continued on, and that's it.
1: Except, it turns out, that wasn't just it. I've heard Anna tell this story before, and I thought it was just a funny little moment, one of those strange school stories. It wasn't until we were interviewing Barry that the story took on a whole other meaning. We rather randomly got onto the topic of skirts and how Dave, one of those early Centrepoint members, imported them from India.
0: So there were heaps of wraparound skirts in the community we all wore them.
1: That word, wraparound, reminded me of Anna's story. My sister remembers Margie being a relief teacher at Long Bay in drama and she did a thing where everyone was whirling around and she was wearing a wraparound skirt and it flew up and she was wearing no around. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was a strange moment... Turns out that Barry already knew about this incident, and she knew what happened next. How a row of dominoes started to topple.
0: Um, no, no, that incident did lead to her being oh, fired from oh, I think,
1: well, do, do you know that incident a bit? Yes. Can you, can you, just, can you tell us? So Barry's saying that Margie's stint as a relief teacher was over, and the consequences of that kind of funny, slightly silly moment didn't end there. In fact, it got really dark. So, while Margie was teaching at school, Bert would spend time during the day with a woman called Susan, a nurse who lived at Centrepoint. But when Margie lost her job because of that skirt twirling incident...
0: She was on the property all the time, and so that changed the dynamic.
1: Susan was not happy with the change in circumstances, but Bert, he was happy to have both of these women. Things came to a head at a group therapy session, and Barry was there.
0: Sue wanted she wanted him to be her sole partner, and he was insistent. no. they could be equal, Bert told her. He'd happily have babies with both of them. Sue just wasn't coping with it. She was extraordinarily distressed. And whether she just flying out hit him or what whatever, he, but she didn't hit him like, she might have touched him or um, he walloped her, just physically walloped her, knocked, knocked her over and just wouldn't negotiate with her anymore. That's it. That's what I'm available for. I'm going to take it or leave it. Um, no woman hits me. If any woman, it, he would not just in this context say, I, I will never hit a woman, but if a woman hits me, I'll hit her back way. I don't- Um, And he did.
1: We've heard another account from inside this therapy group, another person who is there who will never forget the confrontation between Bert and Susan. This guy doesn't recall any physical violence, but he does remember clearly that Bert was verbally brutal as he shuts Susan down. Days later, on a damp Sunday morning, a neighbour is walking along the fence line of his boundary with Centrepoint. He comes to a creek and sees something under a tree. It's a woman. She's wearing a wraparound skirt and has bare feet. He gets a fright and asks if she's all right. She doesn't answer. He moves closer and notices her skin is blotchy and blue. Her eyes are wide open. He races to point to tell them and to ask for the doctor, Keith, to come. A group gathers around him. They seem to have already guessed who it is. Someone says they wish they hadn't been so nasty to her. Others say she'd been arguing with Bert. Someone says she's finally done it. It's Susan. She's dead. She's taken her own life. One of her friends at the hospital says Susan was distressed about the recent documentary on TV and that people had the wrong idea about the place. She was also upset about the status of her relationship. Bert, though, insists he's done nothing wrong. In fact, in Barry's telling, Bert goes on the
0: offensive. You know, he gathered all the community together. Sue had done this hostile act to the community. She'd threatened the community. He could understand our anger for Sue. He was angry with her himself for doing this to him and doing this to the community. And we all had these huge cushions in those days everyone was to take a cushion get their anger out about sue um so the whole lounge was just erupting and screaming and yelling and I was just like you know I I'd, I'd witnessed this and this just no owning of anything I just there were big poles in the lounge. I just got myself to the real edge of the community behind a pole where he couldn't see me. And yeah, and you sort of look back and go, why didn't I leave at that point? You know, there's all these points where you just look back and go.
1: <sighs> Under New Zealand law, suspected suicides are always looked at by the coroner with the assistance of the police. So, not long afterwards, a North Shore detective called Dean Thomas drives across the bridge at Mills Lane. And he asks to speak to the guru of Centrepoint, Herbert Thomas Potter. Episode 2 of The Commune A Stuff production It was written, researched and produced By Eugene Bingham and me, Adam Dudding Mixing by Andrew McDowell of Digicake Music by Audio Network For more information about the show Head to stuff.co.nz The Commune The Geoff Stephen documentary Centrepoint A Spiritual Growth Community Is available for viewing on the nzonscreen.com website